Hey there, it's your host, Shannon Ballard. Southern Mysteries is an independent podcast made possible by the support of patrons who help me continue to share stories like the one you'll hear today. I appreciate all my patrons and want to say a special thanks to our newest members. Sandra Walls from Murphy, Texas. Charlotte Nichols from Woodbridge, Virginia. Steve Gava from Casino, New South Wales, Australia. And thanks to Tina M., Alyssa, and Renee Dixon, who are all listening and supporting Southern Mysteries from mysterious locations. When you join them in supporting the show on Patreon, you can hear ad-free episodes and the show archive of the first three seasons. You can also join at a level where you have access to a lot of bonus content, like the archives of patron-exclusive podcasts through the years and the new patron-exclusive monthly podcast, Audacious, Tales of Scandalous and Shocking Crimes in American History. There are two tiers, two options for joining in on Patreon, and it's easy to opt in or out. You can check it out for yourself, join today, and you'll immediately have access to all the episodes you haven't heard before at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. William and Ellen Craft escaped slavery in Macon, Georgia, by traveling to Philadelphia in 1848. Ellen, the light-skinned daughter of her mixed-race mother and their enslaver, posed as a young white male planter, while William posed as her slave. Their daring escape made international headlines, and the crafts became two of the most famous emancipated people in American history. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, Exploring History and Mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the story of William and Ellen Craft's Desperate Leap to Liberty. In 1860, Running a Thousand Miles for Freedom was published in London. Written by William and Ellen Craft, the book detailed the Craft's escape from enslavement in Georgia. William wrote, It is true our condition as slaves was not by any means the worst, but the thought that we could not call the bones and sinews that God gave us our own haunted us. Ellen and William's story begins in Georgia, where they were both enslaved, but came from very different backgrounds. Ellen was born in Clinton, Georgia, in 1826. She was the daughter of her enslaved, mixed-race mother, Maria, and their enslaver, wealthy planter, Major James Smith. Ellen appeared to be white and looked like her white half-siblings. By the time she was 11 years old, people around their community started talking about the similarities, leading the planter's wife to remove Ellen from their house. When the planter's wife offered Ellen as a wedding gift to her daughter, Eliza, who lived in Macon, Georgia. William was born enslaved in Macon around 1824. He was separated from his parents and siblings at a young age when they were sold during slave auction. William later wrote that that traumatic separation sent red-hot indignation darting like lightning through every vein and made me crave for power to avenge our wrongs. William and Ellen's lives intersected when they met in Macon, fell in love, 
and dreamed of marriage and children, raising their children free. Initially, Ellen refused to marry William, saying she would not bear children born into the horror of slavery. But over time, William and Ellen wanted to make their commitment to each other official, and they married in 1846. Because the Crafts were enslaved by different families, they weren't allowed to live together. William and Ellen began to discuss ways they could escape. William cautiously pointed out to Ellen that her nearly white appearance could work in their favor. With this in mind, just before Christmas, 1848, William proposed a daring escape plan. He suggested to Ellen that they disguise her as an invalid young white gentleman. As a young black man, people would assume William was with his master. If this worked, William and Ellen could travel together and escape. Ellen wasn't convinced she could pull off the disguise as a white planter, but she contemplated the idea of having children born into slavery and felt the time was right to try to escape. William set about very carefully collecting pieces of clothing for Ellen's disguise from different areas of town, including a sling, to make Ellen's disguise as an ill, young, white planter convincing She would carry her right arm in a sling so she could ask someone else to sign her name. There would be a lot of paperwork required for travel from Georgia to their intended location of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Having been born into slavery, William and Ellen were denied an education, and they could not read or write. Using a sling would alleviate the chance of their lack of education being discovered, which would cause people to ask questions. A handkerchief would be wrapped under Ellen's chin and tied above her head to cover her beardless face. William suggested she limp and use a cane to weaken her appearance. She would wear dark green glasses, which suggested poor sight. Finally, to avoid conversations with any curious fellow travelers, Ellen would pretend to be hard of hearing. Being disguised as an ill, young, white planter made it believable that a sick young man would need to travel to Philadelphia to seek treatment for his health and would need one of their slaves to attend to them on the journey. Once William and Ellen had everything they needed for Ellen's disguise and a firm travel plan in mind, they set a date. They would leave on December 21st, 1848. A few days before they planned to leave, They asked their enslavers for permission to leave their home for three days, just a few days before Christmas. They were granted permission, which meant they would have a few days to get as far away from Georgia as possible. Once their enslavers realized they were gone, bounty hunters would be searching for William and Ellen. On December 21st, the crafts took separate routes to the train station. Ellen, dressed as William's master, called herself Mr. William Johnson. The pair called their journey their desperate leap to liberty. Ellen, disguised as Mr. Johnson, walked into the main entrance of the train station where she bought two tickets to Savannah, which was 200 miles away. The moment they boarded the train, William and Ellen feared their desperate leap was over before it began. 
as Ellen took her seat, a friend of her enslaver sat down next to her. He didn't recognize Ellen in her disguise, and Ellen avoided conversation with a man who later moved to another seat for the remainder of the journey. Late that evening, the crafts arrived in Savannah, where they boarded a horse-drawn carriage that transported them to the General Clinch, a steamer headed for Charleston, South Carolina. When they boarded, Ellen pretended to be ill and went to bed to avoid conversation with her fellow travelers. In her disguise as a young white man, she slept in a bed. William was forced to sleep on cotton bags in a cargo area. The following morning, Ellen, or Mr. Johnson, was asked to dine with the captain and a few of his friends for breakfast. This was a true test of Ellen's disguise, which she knew she passed when the captain and a slave dealer heard her reference that she was traveling with her slave. Both of them immediately warned young Mr. Johnson that he needed to be careful traveling north because enslaved people always tried to escape there. The slave dealer even tried to buy William from Ellen at a reduced rate, thinking the fear tactic would make the person he saw as a sickly young white planter willing to strike up a bargain. The offer was declined. On December 22nd, the crafts arrived in Charleston, where they rested in a hotel before the next leg of their journey, boarding a steamer from Charleston to Philadelphia. But the crafts learned the last steamer traveling that route for the winter had left the day before. There was one other option, a route that would take them through Wilmington, North Carolina. They arrived in Wilmington on December 23rd. The rest of their journey north required several train rides and steamer trips. A coach transported the crafts from Wilmington to Richmond, Virginia, where they boarded a train to Fredericksburg, Virginia, and from Fredericksburg, boarded a steamer to Washington, D.C. In D.C., they boarded a train that arrived in Baltimore, Maryland on Christmas Eve. One more train ride, and they would make it to Philadelphia and freedom. At the train station in Baltimore, an officer stopped them and informed William his master needed to go to the office to prove ownership of him before they boarded the train north. Anyone traveling north with a slave had to buy security bonds for the journey. The officer explained that if they let a gentleman such as Mr. Johnson board the train and travel north with a slave they did not own, their office would be liable to pay the slave's master if they came looking for them in Baltimore. The Crafts later wrote that it was in this moment they felt their very existence was at stake, and they must either sink or swim. Their train to Philadelphia was leaving soon, and they had no way to prove they were master and slave. A stroke of luck and compassion for the person a conductor believed to be a sickly Mr. Johnson allowed them to board. The conductor of the train the Crafts had taken from D.C. overheard the conversation and confirmed to the officer that William was Mr. Johnson's slave. He pointed out Mr. Johnson's poor health and said it would be a pity to hold them up. The officer hesitated, but let them pass. William and Ellen Craft 
boarded the train to Philadelphia. William later wrote of the moment he saw the city for the first time, saying, I felt the straps that bound the heavy burden to my back began to pop and the load to roll off. Once they disembarked, the crafts went to a boarding house operated by a trusted abolitionist. Ellen shocked the abolitionist when she removed her disguise and disclosed she and William were husband and wife. The landlord and a small group of abolitionists who had gathered to help the crafts explained their best chance to remain free was to rest a while in Philadelphia, then travel on to Boston, where public opinion against slavery was stronger. There was strong opposition to kidnapping and returning escaped slaves to their masters, so much so that it was almost impossible for anyone to take a fugitive slave out of Massachusetts. The crafts rested in the home of a Quaker family, the Ivans. Mr. Barclay Ivans and his family welcomed the crafts, but William and Ellen were understandably fearful of the white man who could report them and send them back to Georgia. But within a week, the crafts began to feel at peace in the Ivans' home. They later wrote of the Ivans' kindness and generosity, saying it was the first act of great and disinterested kindness they had ever received from a white person. It was the Ivans' daughter who learned the crafts could not read or write and dedicated time to teach them before they left for Boston. When they left three weeks later, the crafts knew how to read and both could sign their names. When William and Ellen Craft arrived in Boston, they lived in the house of Lewis and Harriet Hayden. Lewis was a former slave who operated a boarding house that was a key station on the Underground Railroad, which helped runaway slaves find resources when they escaped and assisted slaves as they moved from one point to the next on their journey to freedom. The Haydens helped William and Ellen find jobs. William worked as a cabinet maker and Ellen as a seamstress. The Crafts joined the abolitionist movement, sharing their escape story at anti-slavery meetings in Boston and throughout New England. Whenever they spoke, a church, a meeting house, it was overflowing with people who wanted to hear the Crafts' story. William and Ellen had transitioned from a life of enslavement in Georgia to sharing the stage with abolitionists such as William Lloyd Garrison and fellow fugitive slaves, including Frederick Douglass. The Crafts settled into a new life in the North, but they knew things could change at any moment. In September 1850, their newfound freedom was threatened with the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law. The law made it a crime for residents of free states to shelter or aid fugitive slaves and ordered federal marshals and private citizens to assist in the capture of fugitives. The act further endangered fugitive slaves by rewarding officers of the law for assisting owners in the apprehension of runaway slaves to return them to their enslavers. Abolitionist William Still wrote the following when news broke that Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Law. Even the bravest abolitionist began to fear that a fugitive slave was no longer safe anywhere under the stars and stripes. Boston abolitionists responded by organizing the League of Freedom to protect fugitive slaves. 
Lewis Hayden was president, William Kraft, vice president. Within a week, the League of Freedom partnered with the Boston Vigilance Committee in a move they said would protect all colored residents of Boston from any invasion of their rights. As abolitionists organized protection efforts, Dr. Robert Collins, Ellen's former owner, learned she was in Boston and sent bounty hunters to kidnap and return her to Georgia. Word of the bounty hunters coming from Georgia made it to Boston, where the Vigilance Committee moved Ellen to a safe house. William remained in the Hayden home, with Vigilance Committee members striking out against the bounty hunters when news spread they arrived in the city. A large Vigilance Committee group approached these bounty hunters at their hotel and informed them they could not guarantee their safety if they remained in Boston. The hunters agreed to leave only because they knew the damage to the crafts had already been done. Earlier in the day, they had delivered a warrant for the craft's arrest to the federal marshal. William and Ellen were no longer safe in Boston or anywhere in the North. They continued to move from safe house to safe house, where abolitionists sheltered them from bounty hunters who continued to search for the crafts until early November 1850. Knowing their safety was compromised, and they could endanger fellow abolitionists who offered shelter, the crafts made the decision to leave Boston for England. Before they set sail for England, William and Ellen remarried on November 7, 1850. Their first marriage ceremony had been according to the laws of enslavement. Their second was according to the laws of a free state. Days later, the Crafts sailed for Liverpool. Friends of the Crafts from Boston wrote letters to fellow abolitionists in England who guaranteed support and shelter when the Crafts arrived. England had freed its West Indian slaves, and abolitionists supported the anti-slavery movement in the United States. They were more than willing to assist the Crafts as they began a new life. William and Ellen finally felt safe and secure. They spent several years in rural Surrey, where they completed their education and joined a lecture tour, educating people about the realities of slavery. They eventually settled in Hammersmith in West London, where they helped organize the London Emancipation Society. Over the next 20 years, the Crafts welcomed five children, all born free, just as William and Ellen had dreamed of when they fell in love in Georgia. In 1860, the Crafts' Running a Thousand Miles for Freedom was published in London. Their first-hand account of their journey from Georgia to freedom was popular reading. William and Ellen settled into a meaningful and rather peaceful life in England. But they had the occasional tense encounter with visitors from the American South who would see William and Ellen on the lecture tour and at an anti-slavery exhibition in England. Some of these visitors even spread rumors that they spoke with Ellen Craft, who revealed she missed Georgia and wanted to return home to her enslaver. Ellen said the following about these rumors, I'd much rather starve in England, a free woman, than to be a slave for the best man that ever breathed upon the American continent. When the Civil War began in the United States in 1861, William explained to friends 
he had to fight the impulse to return to America and join the Union Army in the fight. William and Ellen were still considered slave fugitives in America, which meant until slavery ended, there was no going home. Instead of traveling to America, William traveled to Africa's west coast to promote trade with England and tried to persuade kings to end the slave trade. Back home in England, Ellen educated their children and organized an aid movement to help free slaves and black children. It was in England the Crafts experienced an unexpected reunion. In early 1865, Ellen received word her mother, Maria, had been located in Georgia. William and Ellen paid for Maria's passage to England, where mother and daughter were reunited in December 1865, nearly 30 years after 11-year-old Ellen had been separated from her mother. By 1869, slavery had been abolished in the United States, and there was hope of continued change. William and Ellen decided the time was right to go home to Georgia. They spent a few years raising funds to purchase 1,800 acres of land near Savannah, just across the state line in South Carolina. But by the end of 1870, they were burnt out by the Ku Klux Klan. The Crafts were determined to try again. They bought the lease on another plantation in Woodville, Georgia, and established a school for the education and employment of emancipated men and women. The Woodville Cooperative Farm School thrived early on. By 1876, Ellen was teaching 75 children, but economic issues led to the closure of the school. The Crafts tried to maintain their farm, but mounting debt and increasing threats against them from the KKK led to the failure of the farm a few years after the school closed. In 1890, William and Ellen accepted their daughter's invitation to move to Charleston, South Carolina, and live with her family, which is where the Crafts remained for the rest of their lives. Ellen died in 1891. Her dying wish was to be buried under her favorite tree on their land, which William honored. He was heartbroken in 1900 when the Crafts' land in Georgia had to be auctioned off to pay William's debts. William Craft died later that year. Historian Gary Walton once described the Crafts' story as a story of courage and compassion, courage to escape slavery, and compassion of people who supported them along their journey to freedom. That courage and compassion became the Crafts' legacy. Their desperate leap to liberty was an inspiration to other slaves who planned and attempted escape. The Crafts' unyielding efforts to advocate against slavery inspired abolitionists who read Running a Thousand Miles for Freedom. The Crafts' courage and relentless spirit is evident in their descendants, including their great-great-granddaughter, Peggy Trotter Damon Priestley. Peggy was a freedom writer and a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee who worked alongside civil rights activist John Lewis, Bob Moses, and many more. She traveled across the rural Deep South in the 1950s and 60s to register black voters in underserved communities. 
now 80 years old, she continues her family's legacy of activism. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. When the Crafts book was published in London in 1860, only William was named as author. When Running a Thousand Miles for Freedom was reprinted in the United States in the 1990s, that mistake was corrected with William and Ellen Craft credited as authors. The Craft story is enlightening and inspiring. I'll drop a link to the book in the show notes along with all the sources for this episode at southernmysteries.com. That's also where you can learn about becoming a patron of this independent podcast. Your support helps make this podcast possible so I can share stories like the one you've heard today and you get something in return. When you join Southern Mysteries on Patreon, you get access to member-exclusive content, including the show archive of the first three seasons. You get ad-free episodes, and you can also join at a level where you have access to the archives of patron-exclusive podcasts and the monthly patron podcast, Audacious, Tales of Scandalous and Shocking Crimes in American History. You can check it out and start listening to episodes you haven't heard yet at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. However you support the show, whether it's as a patron on Patreon, rating and reviewing the podcast where you're listening, tapping on the follow button where you're listening so more people can discover it, everything helps because it drives awareness about Southern Mysteries in the mysterious algorithm of podcast and helps other people discover the show, which is a good thing for all of us. Whatever that support looks like, just know it is always greatly appreciated. Thanks for listening.